So much of the time in relationships, we might think we're being really loving or nurturing or respectful, but our partner's not receiving it in that way because their version or their perception of loving, respect, uh, you know, nurturing is different and they need to receive it in different Ooh, I ways. Gotta go. I've been working, so them please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro. Just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog. Swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this game. Now my fan they can't eat. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As nurses, we know your mental health matters. It's important to prioritize yourself. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. Just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences, then BetterHelp will match you with the right therapist. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash cupofnurses. As a nursing student or nurse, you know how important it is to have the right resources to help you succeed. That's why we invite you to check out our nursing resource page, where you can find freebies like our cheat sheets, travel checklist, favorite Amazon products, and more. In addition, you can purchase our merch and NCLEX guide. Don't miss out on these valuable tools to help you excel in your nursing career. Visit cupofnurses.com today. Hey, everyone. Welcome, welcome to the Cup of Nurses show here with your hosts, Peter and Matt, two nurses on a mission to change this world one conversation at a time. If you find value in this show and want to join us on this mission, please share and review the show. It would mean absolutely everything to us. Cupofnurses.com for the latest info, updates, and merch releases. For a lifestyle podcast, you can check out wearefrontlinewarriors.com. In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Ashley Turner. Ashley Turner is a yoga meditation expert, licensed psychotherapist, writer, facilitator, and seven-figure wellness entrepreneur. She is the founder and CEO of the Center of Yoga Psychology, an innovative, scientifically grounded training center for yoga teachers, mental health clinicians, and dedicated students fusing yoga, mindfulness, trauma resolution, shadow work, and neuroscience. Ashley is a sought-after speaker, facilitator, and presenter at conferences and events worldwide. Her mission is to integrate yoga and meditation into the mainstream medical and educational systems. Join us as we talk about family and relationship psychology, as well as the chakras and how to heal trauma. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you so much for your time. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself on how you became a therapist, a facilitator, and a priestess? Yeah, well, I started out as a yoga teacher. And let me just say thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here with you all. It's everybody watching and listening and, and both of you. Um, I shortly after, well, right after college, I found yoga. And then shortly after practicing yoga a few years in, I realized I wanted to start teaching. So I've been teaching yoga for over 20 years and saw the incredible change that happened for me. And I don't think I would have named it at the time as anxiety or really depression, but that's definitely what I was experiencing and yoga in my twenties. And I realized that, um, I wanted to start teaching. I wanted to offer the, you know, people these practices. And then once I started teaching, I saw the breakthroughs that people were having on the mat, you know, emotional breakthroughs, personal breakthroughs. And I wanted to understand how it was that you could do a yoga practice for 60 or 90 minutes. And so I wanted to go back to school, decide to go back to school, become a licensed psychotherapist, got my master's in counseling psychology, um, became a licensed therapist. And then uh, wrote my master's thesis on the integration of yoga and psychology. And since then have been leading trainings, mainly professional trainings, but now also open up a whole online academy for yoga, meditation, and holistic mental health, and teaching yoga teachers how to bring in more psychological 
tools and breakthrough exercises and teaching mental health and healthcare professionals how to weave in more holistic tools like yoga, meditation, mindfulness, breath work into their clinical practices. So that's it in a nutshell. And along the way, I also did a priestess training and launched a 13 moon priestess mystery school. So those are the three big rivers that run through my work, the priestess work, the yoga, and then depth psychology and counseling psychology. And are you currently using the psychological tools to help your clients when you're a licensed therapist or is that separate from your practice? Yeah, for sure. I have a small group, a small handful of clients that I work with one-on-one. And then also I'm getting ready to roll out a, a small group, really like group therapy, because one of my teachers and therapists, we used to go to her individually and then we would also have group. And the group is really, really powerful to be witnessed, to be seen, to be held in a group environment, supported, to realize you're not alone. Your story is actually probably not that unique. Um, many people go through very similar challenges. So yeah, I, I use tools like yoga tools in my clinical practice with therapy and coaching clients, and then also in small groups and then bigger groups, um, retreats and workshops and this kind of thing. Mm. And since you do have a license in marriage and family therapy, what are some common struggles that, that you see in like relationships regarding marriage or starting a family or any kind of um, issues that, that they deal with? Well, I think there are some pretty common themes. I think probably the biggest thing most people struggle with is communication. You know, anytime you're in any relationship, there's two different people with two different worldviews and personal histories and um, we're always filtering our experience through our own lens based on our past experience. And so, so much of the time in relationships, we might think we're being really loving or nurturing or respectful, but our partner's not receiving it in that way because their version or their perception of loving respect uh, you know, nurturing is different and they need to receive it in different ways. You know, it's sort of like the love languages, number one, but also relationships are our greatest vehicle for consciousness. And so especially romantic partnerships are probably the most triggering relationships of all. And that's because they are typically mirror our core wounds and what's happened in childhood, in our early development, the way that we learn to love and give and receive love and be accepted, which was all pre-verbal, pre-cognitive. So deep, deeply seated in the unconscious. When we're in a romantic partnership, those people trigger those core wounds or vulnerabilities in us, whether we realize it or not. And it, it takes a lot of commitment, a lot of patience, a lot of compassion and self-compassion to really be in a conscious partnership for both people to be willing to look at their stuff, to own their stuff, to take responsibility for their own triggers and how we also might be creating harm inadvertently. So I think, you know, those are the two things I would say, number one, communication and learning how to communicate in an, in, you know, nonviolent way and not without getting defensive, communicate effectively. So we don't just get caught in the same loops and spirals, which is pretty common in relationships. And then number two, to really be willing to do the work to heal our own triggers and our own unconscious patterns and, and belief systems that our partner is reflecting back to us. So in a nutshell, again, it takes a lot of patience and compassion. And if both people are really willing to be in that work and doing the work of conscious relationships, it, I believe, is truly the most transformative vehicle for us. But it's really tricky and it's hard. I think, you know, romantic partnerships, as my teacher Ramda says, are the greatest yoga. They are the relationships are the greatest, most difficult yoga which is to say that they're the greatest vehicle and also the most challenging, you know, spiritual practice that we can have because it's really hitting on all of those core wounds and triggers. That's very powerful because I've never seen it that way. So that's an interesting perspective. And even patients that we ask that are in their 70s, 80s and older, they always say that communication is one of those, one of those core values that you need to have a successful marriage. 
So honing back on the communication, how does one facilitate proper communication when beliefs or triggers come up to the surface? How do you establish common ground to communicate properly so you don't go back into those emotional spiral loops of defending and protecting yourself and actually creating a conscious relationship? Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, One of my teachers, Don Rosenthal, he is... I'm working with him, my partner and I work with him right now in couples therapy. And he's taught me such a great tool called open-hearted listening. And it's it's similar to active listening, which is a, a pretty common um, tool in relationships to really listen deeply with your whole being to the other person. And the key is that you're listening to actually understand where they're coming from instead of to posture and formulate your response, right? You're, you're not even concerned about your response or what you're, whether you believe they're right or wrong, your aim initially, the first step is to really hear them and to really express to them that you've heard them and that you understand. So the first step in that is reflecting back, just simply reflecting back what you heard. And so in, in active listening, um, we, we would say you literally almost mirror back the exact same thing and you can use the prompt. So what I heard you say is, um, so let me repeat back what I heard. Like it's quite literal and it can actually be tedious in the first phases of learning how to do this. So you, number one, you reflect back exactly what you heard them say. But then the second thing is you want to ask, is there anything I missed? Because most often you probably missed a couple points that they were trying to make. Or maybe they want to clarify something that you didn't quite get right. So once you do that, you've you've established that you really heard them, then and and that you got all the points they were making. The second thing is to validate what they heard, what you heard, and validate what how they feel. So again, in the second step, it doesn't matter. You don't have to agree with what they're saying. And many times you won't, right? Especially if they're coming to you with something they're frustrated about. Um, the tendency is for us to get defensive and then start to be making our own case. And we're not even validating how they actually feel and what what's going on for them. So number one, reflect. Number two, validate. And so you could say something like, you know, um, maybe your partner says, hey, you're late again. Like I, I can't believe you're late. This is so frustrating to me. This happens all the time. And I feel like it's really disrespectful. So you could have all the excuses in the world of why you were late and, and you had a good reason or whatever. None of that matters. You first just reflect back. Okay, here you say that you're really upset. And because I was late and you feel like this was disrespectful. That's the reflecting. And then the second piece is the validating. I really, and so you would, you would take it on like it's your own and say, I can put, really put yourself in that position and say, you know what? I really understand how frustrating this is and that it's really disrespectful of your time. And, and you hurried to get here and you, you know, mapped your whole day around this um, date that we were going to go on. And then I showed up 20 minutes late and it feels like I don't care. I really understand how you feel that. I don't really care. I'm not taking this seriously. I'm not really committed or invested in this because it was sort of seems like it was um, the last thing on my agenda, you know, and I just squeeze it in and I'm running late and that feels really disrespectful and hurtful. And you could feel like that you're not a priority for me. Right. So you validate what, what their experience is. You really, really have empathy and compassion and put yourself in that position. And then you ask them if that was right. You know, most of the time in relationships, in any situation, we really just want to feel like we're seen and heard. We really want to feel like we're respected and our experience is understood. And so that can go a long way in creating healing to really be seen and heard. You know, then from there, you can start to, um, you know, move to the next step of making amends or finding a solution to the problem or giving, you know, your perspective or feedback. But the first steps are really to validate and understand where that person is coming from and make it really clear. It's a great skill because it forces you into humility. It forces you to put your whole agenda on pause and be really attuned to who's in front of you and what they need and what they want. And that creates 
such a healing um, capacity in the relationship. Yeah, I was going to say that's very powerful because you're putting yourself second in a sense, but in a positive way, because too many times, I don't know if you want to call it false spirituality nowadays, but always about prioritize yourself and your feelings matter over anybody else. And it creates almost this negative dogma where we're not validating properly other people's feelings because we want to make sure that our point is put across first and why our perspective matters versus over somebody else's. Yeah, I think it was, it might've been Dale Carnegie, I think that said, or um, maybe Napoleon Hill that said, you know, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And that's a good rule to live by. Yeah, I think that was Napoleon Hill because that's one of the, in one of the books that I'm, that I'm reading about him or an audible technically. But uh, this next question, it might be the same answer that you just gave, but how can you build or foster trust in a, in a relationship? Is it just the same way as you, as you spoke a little bit about the listening and then repeating and then following up? Or is there some other way you could instill trust? Because sometimes you're in a relationship where maybe your partner is a little bit insecure or even you're, you're insecure yourself. So how can you build that, that security in your partner or within yourself just so your partner or you aren't always thinking that, hey, you're, you're, the person that you're with is, is scheming something or, or cheating on you or just doing something, something deceptive? Yeah, I think there are two parts to that question. You know, trust is one of our basic, most basic needs. And you can't really have anything if you don't have trust. And in, you know, I work a lot in yoga with the chakra system. And it's the first chakra energy is trust, building safety and trust in any situation, in any relationship. I I also heard a great um, aphorism that you, you know, People have to earn our trust, right? And so how do we earn trust? We earn trust by doing what we say we're going to do and showing up the way we say we are, keeping our word and being our word. And so I think it's, I think the twofold statement is that you yourself are responsible for earning the trust of someone, you know, really showing up in integrity the way you said you were going to, doing what you say you're going to do. Um, and the second part is we're all responsible ourselves for cultivating our own sense of self-reliance and confidence and really self-trust. Because at the end of the day, in a relationship, you know, we can never control someone else. We can only control our own, our own ability to respond in any situation. And so we have to cultivate our own self-trust and resilience and reliance to know that no matter what happens on the outside, no matter if we break up, if this person is cheating on me, um, if we get divorced, I trust that I'm going to be okay. I trust myself. I have confidence that I will make it through with grace, with wisdom, with strength. And so we withdraw our projection. In other words, we can't look to our partner to make us feel trusting in the world um, that everything's going to be okay. They can't be the source of that. We have to find our own source of trust and well-being inside. And then secondarily, of course, in a relationship, when you have self-trust and self-confidence, you will only want to be with partners that you can trust. And so if you truly are with someone that you don't trust or you're not sure about, or they are not up for the same level of commitment, they don't want the same things in life, their values are really different. It's simply not a match. And you trust yourself and the universe that if you leave and need to go find a better match, that's okay. So that's, that's like sort of the root and the core of it is you have to find that source within yourself. But in relationship, we do earn trust and we also break trust. You know, we all make mistakes. We all hurt our partners, whether we want to or mean to or not. And that's part of the nature of relationships. And so we have to be, become really skillful at healing and making amends and repairing when there's been a rupture. In other words, in, in psychology, there's a common term of rupture and repair. And so actually, when there is a rupture, it can be the most healing and the most lucrative aspect of a relationship when the two people can 
build a solid repair. And you can realize that even if we make mistakes, even if we hurt each other, we can still show up. It's an opportunity, a, a huge opportunity for growth and evolution and um, ex, you know, extending our love and growing together. So the, I, I think in a nutshell, how do we earn trust? Again, we show up and we really are in the highest integrity and we are our word. We also know that we're all human and we will make mistakes, but we're always aiming for, for that highest integrity. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, sort of back to the, the listening piece of putting the other person first, you know, and, and not at our own expense, but being willing to extend ourselves and stretch ourselves and, um, you know, do things that maybe aren't as convenient for us because we want to show our partner that we respect them. We want to show them that they're a priority for us and that it's really, we're on the same team, right? That we're going to make concessions or make compromises because the aim is what's best for the relationship, for that third entity, not just me and mine. I think that's a, that goes a long way, in, especially in any relationship, but definitely romantic relationship to be focusing on what is in the highest good of the partnership of the relationship, you know, and then making decisions from that place. It almost, it almost seems like relationships and trust, they grow and build over time. But is that, is that always the case though? Is there certain things you should look for that maybe signal that this relationship is doomed from the beginning? Or do things always tend to work out over time? Because some of the advice that, that we always give is like, it's going to get better over time. But it just depends on what you do within that time, basically dictates if it's going to get better or, or get worse. So with your experience, does, does time have, have a, a really big benefit on relationships because it helps it grow? Or is, or is there like things you should look for where it's like, if this is going on, then this is going to probably be doomed from the beginning? Are you looking for a fitness tracker to help you reach your fitness goals? Look no further. Whoop 4.0 is the ultimate fitness tracker, helping you optimize your workouts and recover faster. With personalized insights and metrics, you can track your progress and make sure you're getting the most out of your training. Simply sign up using our link and you'll receive a free Whoop 4.0 and a month on us. So why wait? Team up with a community of nurses and take your fitness journey to the next level. What's up listeners? Did you have a long shift at work or a hard workout? Feeling dehydrated? No worries. We've got you covered with Liquid IV. Liquid IV is a perfect solution for those wanting to stay hydrated without consuming all the extra sugar and artificial ingredients in sport drinks. It's a hydration multiplier that provides two to three times more hydration than water alone. And guess what? As our listener, you can use the code CONPOD, C-O-N-P-O-D, to receive 15% off your order and free shipping. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are certainly red flags, of course. I mean, I think any any sort of, you know, real addictive behavior, um, unhealthy patterns, emotionally unhealthy patterns, you know, those are really big red flags to look out for, of course. And then when you're seeking a partner, it's really important to know what you want. What is your end goal? There's a, an incredible teacher on relationships, Alison Armstrong, and she's, you know, has many courses that are phenomenal. I think it's celebrating men, no, celebrating women and understanding men. I think those are, that's like two different courses. One on, she talks a lot about the polarities of the feminine and masculine, but one of the things that she said that really stuck with me is know what your end goal is, right? So for me, I always wanted to have a child. I always wanted to have a family, get married, have a family. And so even way back in my early 20s, my priority was being with people that I knew wanted to have a family. Now, it ended up taking me a long time to find the right partner to have a family with. But she would say, and I probably could have expedited it if I was even a little more focused um, on this, she would say, even back then, even at 21, 22, if you know you want to get married and have a family, there is no reason to ever date or ever go on a date with someone that is, that is not their goal. 
Because if it's not their goal, whether it's now or later, you know, maybe they say they're not ready, they're ambivalent, you know, they may or may not want to have kids. That's not a match because you know what you want. You know what you want to create in your life, right? So you have to know your non-negotiables and you have to know your priorities. People have very different priorities and different values, you know, can have similar values. In other words, like maybe health and wellness is a value. Maybe um, financial abundance is a value. Maybe family being oriented to your family is a high value. But then you have to look at the priorities of where those values land for people. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be 100%, you know, line item by line item aligned with your partner, but you definitely only want to be with people who have shared non-negotiables. So for me, it was a non-negotiable that I wanted to have a child. And, And she would say, you just go through them really fast. Like you don't even go on a date with someone, even if there's 80% of the other stuff is there. If that's a non-negotiable for you, it's by definition, not a match. And that's really hard. I think, especially um, for a lot of women in particular, we don't want to hear that. We want to think like, oh, but know what your non-negotiables are. You know, maybe your non-negotiable is you really know that you want to live abundantly. You want to be, you know, making whatever six figures or whatever that number is for you. And it won't be a match for you to be with someone who doesn't hold that value, you know, and everybody has different truths and different needs in in this lifetime. Um, But we need to be really clear about that, especially on, you know, now that there's dating apps and you can meet so many different kinds of people. So I'll tell you a really quick story. I was with a partner for a long time in my thirties that was ambivalent about having children and, but he was always open. Right. But then when it came down to it and we really were starting to try to get pregnant, he wasn't willing to go, you know, to do IVF or, you know, go that next level. And so eventually we broke up and I knew that I really wanted to have a child and I knew that I would be willing to do it on my own, but I was like, okay, I want to come back and, you know, come back to Los Angeles. And, you know, so I, I set a really clear, prayer to spirit. And I was like, okay, spirit, like I want to find my partner. I had nothing to lose. And I knew that like, this was the last kind of last ditch effort. So I wrote my entire dating profile app and it, um, dating profile on an app. And it was so crystal clear. Like at the very top, it said, if you're not, if you're not ready to have a child and potentially get married in the very near future, we are not a match. If you don't, if you are not looking for a relation, romantic relationship as a vehicle for consciousness, or you don't know what I'm talking about, we are not a match. This is the beginning of my dating profile. So automatically, you know, I'm definitely weeding out the vast majority of people because it was pretty crystal clear and a hard line. Um, but you only need one person. And I found that person on that dating app. In fact, he read my uh, my profile and he was like, oh my God, this girl's serious. Like I need to go back and like buff up my profile because she's really cool and I want to go for this. So he did that. And, you know, by our third date, we knew we were going to be together and have a baby. And there was a longer story to all of that, but that's the truth. And that's what happened. And now we have a beautiful daughter. And, um, but because I was that crystal clear. And so I really want to encourage people men and women, like know what your non-negotiables are, know what your end vision is. Um, and, and focus on that and don't accept anything less, you know, there's always going to be concessions. There's other things that, you know, aren't going to be a hundred percent aligned, but those core three or four non-negotiables, those are essential. Yeah. And that's amazing. It always feels good to hear a nice success story. And I'm, I'm glad everything worked out for you. So my question is, how do you figure out your non-negotiables? How do you figure out like your core values? And how do you differentiate that between some of the values that you have, but are willing to, to change uh, because they're not as important, you could say? It's just time they have to take alone to just think about. Is it something that you figure out over time? Because when, when we're in our early 20s, we're in a dating scene, we don't really, you could say, know our core values. We're still trying to figure out, hey, what do we really value? Because we haven't really experienced everything. So we don't have a really good judgment of, of saying, this is what I value. So how can I figure out what I really, really value and what I shouldn't compromise on? 
Well, there's probably some things that you do know, like maybe you know that you don't, you want to be in a monogamous relationship or you don't want to be in a monogamous relationship or, you know, what, you know, I think lifestyle is really important. I think finances are definitely really important. You know, there's some core paradigms or sectors that you want to start clarifying, like how, what are what are the priorities for you in your life? So for you guys right now, I'm sure travel, adventure, like being out in the world, those are high values. So you're probably looking for a partner that's up for that. That was another thing, for example, like I, on this dating app, I met someone and on the phone, and that was another tip is like, I would just do a phone call first before meeting them and just run through a couple of questions that I knew were really important to me, like travel, because traveling around the world is a huge value for me. And on the phone, before I'd even met this other guy, you know, he said, I don't really like to travel. I'm like super tall, like six, four, whatever. And I can't fit in the airplane seats and I'm good just hanging out. And I was like, nope, begin to identify. And for sure, those values can change over time, but there are probably some really core that you already know. Um, Again, I think health and wellness, spirituality, financial, um, abundance, family, all of those things, you start to see who you want to be at 40 years old, 30 years old, you know, 50 years old. And of course, it's going to continue to evolve and notice when you're with people, like what, what are the things that feel that really light you up? I think using the body as a tool is a really important, um, it's a really important piece because your body will tell you like, how do you want to feel? You know, Um, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's free spirited, maybe it's, you know, music, you know, entertainment, like what are the things that you love to do in your life? And does your partner also enjoy those things? You know, are they also creating a similar lifestyle? So some of it, again, I think it's probably both. Some of it will for sure evolve and you will learn more. And some of it, you can probably start to hone in on a few core non-negotiables. That's very powerful. We, I love the tangent we had about relationships. And again, I think it's very important to find your core values. And I think I heard this on a podcast, Lewis Houses, find out your mission, values, and lifestyle with a partner. If those three are not aligning, it's probably a lot of... Uh, red flag indicators that things won't work out for the long term. But I wanted to switch uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about the healthcare professionals because you said you have talked to nurses and any, and people in the profession. Are there common struggles that you help them overcome? Is it personal work-life balance? Is it in relationships? Is it in their environment that, that they're dealing with, with you know life and death that they need mental mm-hmm. resilience and a mental agility in? Is there a theme that you're noticing with the healthcare professionals? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So I have a a few trainings, um, integrating yoga, mindfulness and psychology. And I didn't realize it. it really came as a surprise to me, but I have a lot of healthcare professionals, particularly nurses that come through my trainings. And many of them are already doing yoga meditation. They know it's really effective. They want to understand how maybe they can bring it more into their profession. Um, some of them are yoga teachers as well, and they just want to understand the mind, body, spirit connection more thoroughly. Probably the biggest thing that I see for sure is burnout and really feeling just exhausted and um, depleted. And so that's something we really focus on is a twofold. It's personal self-care and knowing what you need to do to really support your system. That's your nervous system. You know, how can you downshift, deregulate, deregulate your nervous system so that you're in more of that um, rest and digest, you know, parasympathetic nervous system, because in something like a career in nursing, when you're in what can be, not always, it depends what, what, um, you know, what arena you're working in, but it can be a high stress job and you're, it can be a lot of manual labor. You're working with people that, um, you know, it's, it's stressful to hold that. And I, I think our healthcare education 
system is really lacking in teaching healthcare providers, first responders, you know, nurses, doctors, everyone on the scene, how to hold the space for what's actually happening, right? Because on one level, yes, there's a lot of science and care in that way. But on another level, you're dealing with a person with their mental, emotional reality, with maybe a family, a family system. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of projection onto healthcare providers. So there's a lot of psychological material that's coming up in those environments that most healthcare providers are not taught how to work with. Um, on the other hand, there's also a lot of holistic tools that are available that are incredibly powerful, both for the practitioner, the health that can really offer other avenues of healing and um, interventions that can be really, really helpful. So burnout is definitely the number one thing. You know, there's really simple breath practices Um, Things like just going outside, you know, there's some core tenants, getting into nature, physical exercise, we have to learn how to move energy through our body, right? So whether it's stress, whether it's grief, maybe you have a patient who's not doing well, or anger, frustration, whatever, it could be your own personal stuff, could be in the healthcare system, could be in your working environment. We need to learn how to process our emotions and emotion is energy in motion. And so we need to learn how to move that energy through our bodies so that it's not uh, compounding. It's not creating more tension in the body, which then can lead to more imbalances. And eventually breath, there's, there's three primary ways to move energy. And that is movement, breath, and sound movement, breath, and sound. So just getting outside, maybe screaming, maybe yelling, um, maybe just singing, you know, making a sound, sighing, (sighs) you know, anything to move the energy out of your body, big, deep belly breaths. That's going to help. That's going to help tone the vagus nerve. That's going to help downshift the nervous system and then movement, whatever your favorite kind of movement is. Of course, I love yoga, but, but anything you know, hiking, running, Pilates, weight training, all of it, Um, swimming, of course, anything that's going to move your body is going to help release that stress. So those are the primary things. Nutrition is also on there. And then community support. So some sort of support system, friends, loved ones. I think it's great to find your tribe, you know, find different communities that you feel really connected to. My um, Haven membership, we have a whole you know, every month we have several different calls where people can come on and we have live streaming yoga meditation multiple times a week, but then also we have an emotional processing call, which essentially is kind of like group therapy because we just need to flesh it out. So every full moon, we come together on this emotional processing call and just, I call it emotional rinsing. So that's a really important thing to do to find your own way to clear the tension and um, emotions that we all accumulate to clear that in your system. Is there any like scientific benefits of uh, yoga meditation? Because someone for that is like more analytical, they're just going to say, oh, it just makes you feel better because you're doing these actions. But is there any, any like scientific backing that, hey, yoga meditation actually impacts your nervous system in this way, therefore relieving stress and affecting you that way? Yeah, there's been a lot of studies done over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, a lot of really fascinating findings. One of them, of course, is that yoga does definitely help regulate the nervous system. And we have all this science now about the, the vagus nerve and the power of toning the vagal nerve, which creates you know, decreases inflammation in the body. It increases our feel-good hormones, oxytocin, serotonin, downshifts, the stress hormones, adrenaline, cortisol. There was a fascinating study done that shows, it was done by Dr. Chris Streeter, I believe at Harvard. And she studied two groups, one that was a walking group and one that was doing the same Um, exact kind of exertion with heart rate and breath and all of that with yoga. And they found that the yoga group increased their GABA neurotransmitter. So the GABA neurotransmitter is called the calming neurotransmitter. 
And so we know that GABA increases with yoga. We don't know exactly why, but most likely possibly related to the deep diaphragmatic breath practice that's going on. There's also been a lot of studies on mindfulness and focusing the mind and the breath and a whole host of benefits in the actual um, realm of neuroscience from increasing the, uh, the actual cortical volume of the corpus callosum, which is that center part of the brain. When you're looking at like a cross section of the brain, it connects the right and left hemispheres. That corpus callosum actually expands. The amygdala gland gets smaller, which the amygdala gland is our fight or flight sort of. And so when the amygdala gland shrinks, it's less of that fear response. Corpus callosum increasing the right and left, but the conversation between the right and left activity. We're not just coming from the thinking analytical prefrontal cortex. We're able to access more from the sensory, the um, language, even the non-linguistic um, aspects of brain activity. Um, so those are just a few, you know, there are a lot of others, you know, there's a lot of physiological benefits to obviously building strength and flexibility in the physical structure of the body. Um, you know, unwinding tension patterns, the fascia in the body. Um, so those are some, but very, very real science backing it up for sure. So as time goes on, we're, be, we're becoming more receptive to yoga meditation and Eastern medicine. What, what role do you think in the future yoga meditation is going to play in healthcare as that integration process happens between the healthcare professionals and maybe the patients? Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly hope, and, and one of the intentions of my center is the Center for Yoga Psychology is to increase this conversation and education in healthcare environments, all the way down to training, you know, some basic training for physicians and um, nurses and healthcare providers on the benefits, you know, something like there, there's so many practices that you can do in a hospital bed, you know, you can do, you don't have to get up and roll out a yoga mat, you know, just simple practices, deep breathing, having your hands, you know, on your belly, on your rib cage, deep diaphragmatic breathing. That's like the best practice that you can do. And a nurse could help guide the patient through that. You know, there's no harm in that. In fact, it can really help, it can help the nervous system. It can help again, those stress hormones um, and it can help the impact of all of the other medical interventions that are, that are going on. So I would love to see a real shift in education, just basic education in mindfulness, breath, yoga, um, an understanding of both the physiological and the psychological, and then I would add a third tier of spiritual benefits because all three are equal, you know, mind, body, and spirit that we're really looking at. I mean, ideally there's a real shift in the paradigm because as you know, in science and the healthcare system, we're working with a very, um, uh, a binary, right? From the Cartesian split of mind and body. And so our medical system is built thinking that the mind and body are separate, but they're not separate. They're actually one thing. And our consciousness expresses itself in our body and they're, they're not at all separate. So if we can start to shift the paradigm and tend and treat the whole person, the outcomes will improve. And, and that is to look at, you know, a lot of doctors, you know, it's functional medicine, really and integrative medicine that doctors are now starting to ask, you know, what is your lifestyle like? What's happening in your marriage? What's happening in your family? What was your family system like? Because all of those things impact our health outcomes. So it's, it's a bigger paradigm shift, but there are also very real and tangible practices that can be put into place really quickly and inexpensively. That's the great thing about yoga meditation is that, and, and breath work, it's, free. It's so inexpensive. And so um, there's so many tools that can really benefit someone. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if there's a yogi in every in every nurse, because Matt, how much times have you had to tell your patient, hey, how about you just close your eyes, take a few deep breaths? 
and somehow the situation got better. Just something so simple like that, like closing your eyes, taking a deep breath, just focus on yourself and pain goes away. Heart rate goes down, blood pressure goes down. It just puts that patient in that calming state and that's all you really have to do. You don't have to, like you said, bring out a full mat. You don't need to hire a Thai, Thai masseuse to come give a patient a massage in the hospital. You just have to be able to talk to them and just help them relax in the most fundamental and easiest way that being just closing your eyes and just taking a breath. Yeah, and, and I think it definitely starts with building awareness with the healthcare professionals. So slowly we're integrating maybe some quiet time, taking those 15, 10 minute, minutes to taking a break to de-stress the nervous system, calm yourself and be there for yourself, which ultimately is going to bleed into taking care of the patient better where we can start implementing these, you know, techniques. Yeah. Because so many times when we have patients on our monitors, you can tell they're going into tachycardia or high heart rate by just being anxious. And it's not sometimes physical pain. Sometimes it's what's happening outside of the hospital, like friends, family, maybe their dog's not taking care of, they're not paying their bills because they're in the hospital and that's affecting their mental well-being. And just like you said, consciousness bleeds into the mind and the body, which we start seeing physiological changes, maybe getting anxious, stomach ache, right? Patients that have anxiety and that turns into ulcerative colitis, mm-hmm. they get colostomy back. So definitely there's a lot of trends we see in healthcare, how not taking care of your mind, the body gets effective or affected, I should yeah. say. And I'm, th- I'm thinking now, it's like we live in a generation where you have a medication for everything. And I feel like pills just keep piling on. So maybe at one point we're going to have like a flip where now we're so focused on medications to treat everything, anxiety, depression, that maybe in the future it's going to kind of flip and say that, hey, maybe we could start decreasing these medications and all we have to do is just these simple physiological things as like deep breath, relaxation, meditation, and it's going to decrease some of the medication that they take leading to less adverse effects and just overall feeling better because it's different when you could fix something yourself just by changing your lifestyle versus changing it based on medication. It almost doesn't really empower you. You, you go to the doctor and say, hey, I'm feeling this, this, and this. They're like, okay, we gotta put, we got to put you on this medication. You're never really fixing the, the, the core issue. You're just getting this medication where it alters your feeling, maybe changes your mood, and you never really feel that satisfaction that you get from actual changing. It's like going, it's like going to the gym. You get that satisfaction because you're changing your body. And it's like kind of like taking steroids. Like I'm sure, I'm sure taking steroids changes that that feeling because now you're kind of cheating in, in a sense. So it's almost like that's what you're doing with like different medications because you're not really solving the, the root issue. You're just putting you on a medication and this is this isn't me from from now on. I'm this person that's going to take this SSRI. That's still going to take this medication because because I'm broken in some way. And the only way to fix this this broken issue is by some external force, which is medication. But really, if you just take the time and talk about it, you could just fix it on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, instead of a medication for everything, we'll have a meditation for yeah. everything. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That will bring out a cost of healthcare. That will change a lot of lives for sure. If you can somehow figure that out, you know, that would be amazing. So um, on your website, you talk a lot about trauma-informed yoga. So I was wondering if you could expand and elaborate on that and how that actually works. Is that just like a different type of yoga where you're stretching it in a different way? Is it more of an internal dialogue? How does that work and how does that that benefit people? Well, I think it's really important that any, really at this day and age, any profession, we are focused on trauma-informed care. And that could be teaching, it could be healthcare, it could be yoga, to be as a psychotherapist, that we are starting to realize in the public sphere, I think it's it's becoming pretty common knowledge that we've all experienced trauma to some degree in our lives. And it's important to understand the impact that trauma has and how it will then show up in our patients, in our customers, um, in our peers, So we want to be working through a trauma-informed lens. There are several different aspects to that, but it means that as a practitioner, as a professional, again, whether it's as a nurse, as a physician, as a yoga teacher, a therapist, we're looking at a person or a patient from that whole perspective. And that doesn't mean just the person that's right in front of us. That means including all of their past history, right? So someone could come in. And so it's as simple as the trauma-informed yoga. It's teaching yoga 
through a trauma-informed lens to recognize, particularly in the yoga room, and, and it's very similar, actually parallels the healthcare system because you're working with the body. So the body doesn't lie. You know, the body is, as Bessel van der Kolk says, the body er, keeps the score. In other words, things that may be in our unconscious mind, whether it's big T traumas that happen to us at any stage of our life or in early childhood or developmental trauma that we've experienced, attachment disorders in our early childhood, whether we consciously remember those things or not, the body remembers and they're imprinted in our nervous system. And those memories are held in our body and our physical tissue, you know, reveal themselves. The patient, the client might be surprised. They might not even know what's happening. That's why in a yoga practice, people may start crying, you know, in different poses or have an emotional visceral response. Same thing can happen, you know, in the hospital, in a doctor's office, you're working with the body and it can be re it can be very triggering. It can even be re-traumatizing. And so we want to be trauma informed and take the steps necessary to mitigate and minimize any kind of harm that we might do any kind of re-triggering or re-traumatizing and be aware that most everyone, I would venture to say everyone that we come in contact with is holding trauma. And so how do we how do we address that consciously, mindfully, ethically, and skillfully? So in the yoga room, it looks like, you know, being very mindful about everything from the lighting to how you set up the room to physical adjustments to your verbal cues, um, that you're always giving people options. You're always helping educate them because a lot of people don't know, you know, they're they're just coming in to get strong and flexible or do a hot yoga class. And then all of a sudden they might have a, a triggering response, right. To something. So that's the essence of trauma-informed yoga is that we learn skills as a teacher, as a leader, professional facilitator that are going to help our students that are, that are ethical, that are skillful. And we also have some basic skills when to recognize when someone is getting triggered in the room. And so the same would be true in the healthcare system, you know, to really be mindful and be able to recognize cues of when someone might be being re-traumatized or triggered, you know, when they're going into that, what we might call a trauma response, things like elevated heart rate, breath rate, you know, shaking is a big one. Um, also the opposite freezing, a freeze response, getting frozen and, and sort of rigid, really emotional, having a disproportionate um, emotional response to something. So there's a lot of different ways that we could recognize a trauma response in the room. We want to know, A, when, when one's occurring, start to look for those signs, and then B, how to support that client or student in that situation. And the key is to help get them resourced and bring them back into the present moment. And so there's some very, um, you know, simple things that you can do to help get that person back into the present moment and then help them feel supported, you know, again, downregulate the nervous system, but get them resourced for sure. Yeah, it's very powerful. And I feel like our system in general it creates disadvantages, disadvantage ways to not learn about the body and how to heal trauma and yourself, you know, as simple as developing emotional intelligence in schools and realizing when you're breathing and when somebody, you know, says something that's triggering per se to somebody and notice when your breath is different, when it's more rigid, when it's tense and to be self-aware, to ask yourself questions. Hey, I, I'm, I'm breathing a little bit off here and, and I'm tense. Yeah. I think my body is creating a story that's disadvantaged to the reality that I'm currently experiencing, you know, what, and then creating that space too many times we just go into that loop of the same same story being repeated, playing the same movie per se versus changing the film when your conscience is flickering, creating a negative story. About switching gears a little bit to the chakras, I'm curious on your definition of the chakra system and how we can start maybe incorporating or referencing chakras in modern healthcare. Mm -hmm. It's such a great question. It's such a big question, but I'm so happy you asked. Um, so the chakras are 
Well, there's, there's hundreds of chakras, but chakras are energy centers. The word chakra actually means wheel. And it's an energy center or vortex or wheel of energy. And there are seven primary energy centers or chakras that line basically the center of the spine. So we know that we have this physical anatomical body tissues, everything you can, you know, touch and um, feel, but we also have an energetic anatomy an energetic body. So in the yoga perspective, we have actually five bodies. We have the physical body, the tissues, everything that you guys are really familiar with as nurses in the medical system primarily focuses on the physical body. But in the yoga world, we have five koshas or five sheets, five bodies, physical body, the energetic body, which is our pranic body, 70,000 meridians, nadhis, um, you know, this is the body that acupuncture uses that, you know, um, biofeedback in a lot of ways. And this is the body of the chakra. So there's said to be 70,000 meridians in the body and then these seven primary chakras. And there are many more secondary. There are two um, secondary chakras on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. But for our purposes, these seven primary bodies, the, the other bodies are the mental, emotional body. That's primarily the realm of psychotherapy, right? We might say, um, our psyche, our personality, our emotional life, and then the wisdom body, which we don't really have a clear correlation in Western model, but the wisdom mind. And then the fifth is the spiritual body. So connecting to spiritual, your version of God, goddess, spirit, right? So those are the five bodies. So the energetic body is the, the meridians and then these seven primary chakras. The chakras are they govern physical aspects of our body and they also govern the psychological. I think of that chronic body as sort of the bridge between the mind, the mental emotional body and the physical body. And so the energetic body is what's weaving it all and animating it all together. So the seven chakras, you can think about as if it's seven different notes on a scale, right? So you're going from the base note, the base of the spine, to the high note at the crown of the head. So it's it's almost like a Hertz scale or the UV scale, different gradations of energy, different, more refined aspects of self and consciousness to the very high note, right? Each of the chakras also correlates to different stages of development psychologically. And this is where I think it gets really interesting. So the chakras are a doorway into all of these different realms, and they really are a cornerstone of where that intersection lies between the body, mind, and spirit. One at each of these chakras is not only a vortices of energy, but also a hub in the nervous system. So the nervous system and the endocrine system is very parallel to the chakras. So at the base, we have the first chakra, which is really developmental phase from in utero to tw um, sorry, 12 months, our basic survival mechanism, survive, survival, safety, trust, as I was mentioning. Um, and so it's governed by that. The second is the, the second chakra is the sexual organs, the sacral chakra, um, and there's different elements associated with each of the chakras. But for today, I'll just focus on the developmental phases psychologically. So you can kind of map it in the mental body and the physical body. Second chakra is from 12 to 24 months or 30, uh, no, 12 to 24 months. So it's that next phase of um, locomotion. Now that baby's moving around, they're connecting with the world around them. It's a sensual experience. Third chakra is our power center coming into our own personal identity, individual self for ages two and three. And so this is really where we start to develop boundaries, willpower, individuation. Fourth chakra is our heart center, four to seven years old, social connections, our ability to give and receive love, the energy of the heart, forgiveness. Fifth chakra is um, set, uh, pre prepubescent puberty, and that's all about communication. So our ability to communicate creatively, 
our creativity, um, truth, telling the truth, lies, all kinds of communication. All of this is writing, you know, all of the social media, all of that is the fifth chakra. Sixth chakra is intuition. Now we're moving into the inner world. So the top three chakras govern our inner life. The bottom three chakras govern our relationship to the outer world and relationships. And then the heart chakra is in the center. So the throat, the third eye center is intuition, our ability to see clearly, um, imagination, visionary qualities. And then the seventh is our connection to spirit, our spiritual identity, transcendent unity consciousness. So we go into these more refined layers, but each of the chakras also governs when you think symbolically, what is the throat chakra governing? The mouth, the ears, communication, hearing, anything having to do with speech, the throat, the jaw, the teeth, um, again, hearing, um, or you could take the sixth chakra. What does that have to do with the eyes, how we see also our mind, our mental body, our perception, the filters that we have. So you want to start to think metaphorically with the chakras as well as literally, and then psychologically third chakra, for example, the belly center, everything having to do with, um, digestion, assimilation, release, all of that in the, in all the digestive organs are connected to the third chakra. So it's really powerful to start to understand. I think in, in, um, to your question about the healthcare system, we can look at what are the physical symptoms that someone is having and how might that be an indication of what's going on underneath the surface, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, right? So you gave the perfect example, someone who's really stressed, then it can lead to an ulcer, can lead to ulcerative colitis, and then it just can expand from there. But how can we track it back to what might be the root cause of that? What's the psychological or mental, emotional, or belief system that might be creating that tension and imbalance in the first place? So the chakras are a really good um, sort of barometer and indicator. They're a great map. And it's not always literal, right? But it's a great starting point for us to go into a much deeper investigation. Okay, so it sounds like we use a chakra system to pinpoint where in the psyche or emotionally we're struggling with. So if there's an imbalance in that chakra or energy is being blocked or not properly channeled through that wheel, then we can start digging deeper and use the chakras as a reference point to see what's reference. happening in the psyche and emotionally. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Reference point. That's a perfect... Um, that's a perfect way to look at it. And you can look at the physical, you know, we, once you start to understand the physical correlation with the chakras, you can have someone come in with even, you know, a broken foot, say, oh, that's interesting. That's a first chakra energy. So what might be going on in their life that could be creating this or could be contributing to this? So it's a way to kind of go in both directions into the literal physical body, and then also track it back into the mental, emotional body. You as a licensed therapist, do you use chakra at all in your healing or therapy sessions, or is that something separate related to more yoga and meditation side of things? Yeah, I'm actually in the middle of leading a chakra immersion right now in my membership. And it's just for anyone to do yoga meditation, but we're, I'm teaching through the chakras right now. And it's an absolute do when I start working with clients per oh, you know, what's happening in their lives, what have been core themes, injuries, um, core wounds in their life, and then how can we use different practices? The other piece of the chakras are there's a lot of practical tools that you can use to bring that system back into balance. So whether it's physical asana, yoga practice, meditations, mantras, essential oils, there's all kinds of different tools that you can use. I love the, the practical lifestyle considerations, like things that people can actually change in their life to help rebalance the chakra system. Yeah. Last thing about chakras. I actually, cause I do some coaching on the side and the first session I uh, run uh, people's chakras and I check their energy centers by using a pendulum. So then I could pinpoint more of like what's happening in their life. You know, if it's like their heart chakra is unbalanced, uh, where are they? How are they receiving love? How are they giving love? Is it conditional? Is it unconditional? So 
again, just like you said, it's like a good reference point to see where they're having negative beliefs so we could shift negative beliefs and, you know, help them out essentially. You're already doing this. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's why it's uh, the chakra system is fascinating. I love that. I'm so happy to hear this. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. But one last question we'd like to ask all of our guests. So if you had the opportunity to have a cup of coffee one last time with anybody, who would it be and why? Oh, my God. That's such a difficult question. I don't know. It really... Um, that's a big one. Who would it be and why? It's so hard to pinpoint one person. I think the person that comes to my mind is I would really love to sit with Gloria Steinem. Um, I don't know why that's coming to my mind, but you know, I think I have a lot of respect and admiration for people I consider visionaries and even futurists and people that are really brave and uh, changing the world, you know, really changing worldviews and this and a writer and, and just seeing trends and, and, um, commenting the commentary on society, but obviously the, the really incredible work that she's done to pave the way for so many women and so many different causes. That's one person that comes to mind, but I, I probably would also love to sit with, a, a really deep yogi, you know, maybe, um, Paramahansana Yogananda or even Maharaji, you know, people that gurus that have passed on that I think would be really amazing to, to just sit in their presence. What did you want to ask them or what would you ask them if you had the opportunity? What's the meaning of life? <laughs> Why are we here? No, um, I think, you know, what would be their advice on living well, you know, how to live really well and really skillfully. This is uh, such a wild time we're living in and it's going at such a fast breakneck pace. And I think that deeper core wisdom based on universal truths, you know, getting back to the basics of how do we live well? I think that would be my biggest question. And then Ashley, where can people reach out to you? Um, like a website or Instagram if they need some kind of help or have any questions? Yeah, I think DM on Instagram is great because I can DM back and voice memo. And I love that. It's Ashley Turner one on Instagram. Also yoga psychology on Instagram. Um, but yeah, my website is yoga-psychology.co or ashleyturner.co. Either one of those. Yeah. But Instagram DM is probably the best place. Okay. Ashley, we wanted to acknowledge you for your time, for being on the show. Thank you so much. You are a wealth of knowledge, amazing energy, and you've brought a lot of great insight to all of our listeners with therapy, with relationship, which was a big topic in the beginning, and everything mm -hmm. about healing trauma and the energy centers and how we could integrate it as healthcare professionals more into the profession little by little. So thank you for your time. I am so grateful. You guys are amazing. You're such an inspiration. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening and, and being here with us and all the work that you're doing in the world, all the really good work you're doing in the world. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you.